you want to say? Uh, Winton Higgins in Wellington, uh, third out of four talks at a workshop on secular Buddhism. Date. Oh. Uh, 17th of February 2013. Okay, we've got all that sorted. Um, okay, well, I'm going to uh, sit on the chair because I feel funny being the only person, or the only person but one sitting on the floor. Anyway, it's not very traditional. Um, today, uh, in this session, I want to talk about tradition and culture. And um, I guess uh, one of the things that I've been hearing since I've been here, not for the first time, is, but um, isn't what you're saying untraditional? Is it, is it real Buddhism? I mean, how can you be a Buddhist and not believe in rebirth and wear sheets and shave your head and all that sort of stuff? So I thought we'd go into that and um, uh, sort out this really important issue of tradition and culture. Uh, so let me just start off by saying that uh, before Buddhist, uh, before secular Buddhist practices and groups appeared in the West, uh, by and large Westerners entertained two basic conceptions of what Buddhism was. And the first one is that Buddhism was exotic. And this was, of course, part of its appeal. It had strange rituals and mystical beliefs. And it had temples and gold-plated Buddha images in Thailand. People who have been overseas a lot, of course, uh, have found Buddhism quite um, spectacular and uh, eye-catching. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there are these, um, in the 1960s on, we had these wonderfully Delphic kind of uh, aphorisms coming out of the Zen tradition, you know. What is the sound of one hand clapping? And it all sounded so mystical and wonderful and exotic. And uh, we had uh, uh, very... Um, attractive books come out like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which nobody understood really, but um, uh, which it was good to be seen reading in a coffee shop. <laughs> so, um, and then we had, of course, a, a giggling but terribly profound Dalai Lama who uh, would appear in these sort of quick sound bites on television and everyone would think, Gosh, he's really got it together, and um, you know, wearing his eye shade and his maroon uh, robes and so on. So there was um, so as that idea of um, Buddhism as exotic, and then there was um, the idea of Buddhism as uh, the repository of semi-magical meditation practices. And these uh, meditation practices were marketed on the basis that they would, um, that they were uh, extraordinarily effective ways of dealing with our mental ills and our 
great uh, traumas and anxieties. And um, even some, of course, uh, carried the promise that they would take you somewhere else uh, to another place called Nirvana or uh, Enlightenment or somewhere where you'd be safe from uh, the troubles of earthly existence. And the thing was that both of these uh, ideas of Buddhism were uh, eminently packageable and marketable. And that is how Buddhism really took off in the West. Now, um, uh, secular Buddhism has sort of arrived as the uninvited guest at the wedding of that kind of Buddhism and uh, Western society. And uh, like uninvited guests tend to be, they, they're a bit rude and, um, and they don't quite fit in with what's supposed to be going on. So we find uh, a certain uh, critical attitude to Exotica. And that critical attitude actually comes from some pretty important uh, intellectual sources in the West, the most important probably being uh, Edward Said's book on Orientalism. Uh, showing how uh, Western culture, like all cultures, likes to have an other with a capital O uh, as, a, as a sort of reference point. So we know what we are by having a concept of what the other is. And this other can be really attractive or it can be really repellent. Um, but um, uh, Saeed goes into the whole history of Western Westerners' fascination with the Orient and everything comes out of the Orient is so um, fabulously uh, mysterious and probably partly magical and so on. And more recently, Marina Warner has brought out a book called Stranger Magic about the, the sort of how we often uh, see uh, or, or read into otherness a kind of magic, and she was mostly concerned with attitudes to um, to the Middle East, you know, um, uh, the Arabian Nights and all that kind of uh, literature. So, um, uh, what secular Buddhism is trying to do is get beyond that stuff and to try and see the Buddha's living tradition, seeing exactly what it uh, consists in, and on that basis, to adapt it to our own terms, to make it available to us in, uh, in the kind of hard-nosed way in which our culture allows us to deal with other things that are in our culture. So um, secular Buddhism then accentuates the importance of tradition in, uh, in Buddhism. Uh, and for reasons I'll explain, and however counterintuitive it might sound, I'm going to suggest to you that secular Buddhists are the true traditionalists of the Buddhist world. So, um, to its critics, of course, secular Buddhism is the antithesis of traditional Buddhism. We're finding, I was hearing that on Friday night uh, and a bit yesterday. Um, so, you know, if, this, if we associate Buddhism with uh, robes and rituals and beliefs, uh, 
uh, and meditative techniques that are packageable and do uh, have you know, wonderful curative effects, then of course we are uh, we are outside that kind of tradition. But um, I want to introduce you to a distinction when we talk about traditions that uh, comes from Alastair McIntyre, a very important living philosopher, in a, a book called After Virtue. And McIntyre talks about two kinds of traditions, living ones and dead ones. And a living, the living tradition uh, is one, he suggests that, first of all, that any practice worthy of the name, dentistry, architecture, medicine, creative writing, science, uh, even plumbing, farming and so on, every one of them is held by a tradition. A tradition means we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we go to work. Uh, so uh, there's a tradition behind holding and informing e each practice worthy of the name, including spiritual practice. And uh, what is this tradition then? McIntyre says we can think about it as a conversation between, um, between generations. I uh, often make a kind of cross-reference here to Edmund Burke saying society is a, um, a contract between the past, the present and the future. So um, we're in some sort of a contractual relationship with the generations that went before us. And uh, to be a living tradition, to be, or to be practising in a living tradition is to be able to go back to the original questions that the founder or founders of that tradition were asking. To know what those questions were, to know what their provisional answers were, and to know how successive generations after that have recommitted the questions and reformulated the answers. In other words, to have a sense of how this tradition has developed. And in that way, of course, with that sort of information, we know how we can play our part in reformulating the questions and, uh, and providing new provisional answers appropriate to our own time and place. So, as the good old saying goes, in order to have a future, one has first to have a past. Now, the problem with the dead tradition is that it has lost that. Uh, if you are practicing in a dead tradition, then uh, you have simply been trained in uh, or inculcated in a set of rituals, a set of practices, and you don't really know where they're coming from. Uh, you don't understand the dynamic underpinning them and therefore the only part you can play in continuing that tradition is to perpetuate what you've inherited uh, just as it is uh, because you don't, you don't have the information and you don't have the habit of mind 
uh, in which to readapt it, uh, to retweak it, and to bring it up to date. So I'm suggesting that um, uh, most of our conceptions, our, most of our everyday ordinary conceptions of tradition are of the dead kind. You know, we're doing it this way because we've always done it this way. <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of thing. Um, those of you who, um, who know Fiddler on the Roof, you know, that wonderful song, Tebia sings, tradition. <laughs> and tradition. <laughs> who know, does anyone know the... Yeah. Tradition. <laughs> That's it. Tradition. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> and, Do I know that song? <laughs> And of course, what Tebbia is talking about is a dead tradition. It's a tradition which can't be changed uh, because we don't know how it got there. We don't know, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we've lost the manual. We've lost the operating manual. So um, what I'm suggesting is that we, what secular Buddhism is on about is, uh, is contributing to the Buddhist tradition as a living tradition. And this, of course, um, explains why we keep going back to the earliest teachings and to uh, try to thoroughly understand the questions the Buddha was asking and why he was asking those questions. What was going on that um, uh, to lead him to ask those questions and who was asking him the questions and what did the answers actually mean in the time and culture uh, that prevailed then. Uh, so, um, in a way, we're trying to get back to the Dharmic heartwood this way. And also, of course, understand uh, what's happened since. So we've, we've um, broached this topic quite a bit yesterday about the whole the influence of monasticism. And it's worth remembering that, uh, that Buddhism is unique as a religion in its dependence on monasticism, on a professional, uh, a professional cater, if you like, of uh, practitioners whose... And that professional cater has been a small uh, priestly elite, uh, which in itself has completely changed uh, the nature of Buddhism from being uh, a folk religion at the time, if you, or folk non-religion, whatever you want to call it, during the Buddha's own lifetime, when it was available to anybody, and anybody could take it up to the extent that they wanted to, uh, to the situation um, after the religification of Buddhism where the, uh, where the monastics uh, were, had enormous social, political, cultural authority. Um, you know, to this, to this day, it's like that. I know a friend of mine, uh, uh, an, an old friend of mine, a woman who um, knew I was interested in Buddhism, and she went on a trip to Thailand and was trying to get onto a uh, ferry. And um, uh, the, the uh, ferry was, had two tiers and the lower tier, which was for the common people, was jam-packed and she couldn't get onto it. And she noticed that the, 
there were very few people sitting in the upper tier. And she said, well, can't we sit up there? And the, um, the person in the peak cap said, of course not, madam, that's, that's for monks. And women can't sit <laughs> on the same level as monks. <laughs> I don't think anybody else could either, but particularly, you know, being uh, a lay person and a woman, meant it was just unthinkable that um, she could be sitting up there, you know, in one of those uh, many empty seats. So that sort of stuff is still very much uh, going on. You know, monks are, are carry or carry the title of venerable. Um, well, you know, why isn't a seriously practicing layperson also venerable? If, so, if, it, if we're going to carry on with using words like venerable, then why isn't everyone in this room venerable? Hey, you know, you've sacrificed a weekend. Uh, to get into a bit of Dharma practice. So it's that kind of... And, and, and if you ever go to any uh, traditional, quote-unquote, Buddhist uh, festival or ceremony, like uh, Vesak be coming up in three weeks, just, just check it out, just see what's, you know, who's deferring to who and so on. Um, so um, the... The, the extraordinary hold of monasticism on the tradition after uh, the Buddha's death has had enormous effects. We were looking at yesterday at the effects it's had on, on meditation practice, uh, but in terms of, um, of social deference, uh, political power, and, uh, and so on, it's, it's extremely important to notice that. I'm always uh, completely gobsmacked with the fact that people that uh, religious discussions and theological discussions go on as if institutions had no role in the process of developing uh, developing doctrine. It's, it's an extraordinary blindness, it seems to me. Uh, anyway, I'll leave that one with you. Um, so what we're trying to do here is acculturate the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, uh, to Western conditions where none of this is really meaningful to us. You know, we, uh, Western culture has quite um, an inhibition for better or worse, uh, for better as far as I'm concerned, against what's called magical thinking. You know, magical thinking... Uh, was something that Freud virtually pathologised. <laughs> you know, uh, that um, uh, if you are uh, in robust mental health, then you have given up magical thinking. You know, you uh, you follow the reality principle, as he called it. So um, it seems right then rather extraordinary that if we are to be seen as true blue Buddhists, that we will have somehow bought into uh, Burmese or Thai or Tibetan or Japanese culture instead of... And, and so you have this extraordinary um, uh, kind of scenario that I became familiar with over the years of um, perfectly sane and rational people with good progressive political views going into their... Um, habitual 
Buddhist temple and uh, and prostrating before the monk. You know, what on earth is that all about? Uh, it seems like you know it's a kind of schizophrenic world that we've that we've entered into. Um, so um, we've you know I've seen so many Westerners entering into this kind of self-effacing. Uh, space when they um, are actually joining a spiritual tradition. Uh, my my partner worked for some time in uh, in a, as a paid employee in a Tibetan outfit, and it was just it was just bizarre, you know, the kind of deference that was going on in the bowing and scraping, uh, and, um, and and just. Trying to run the office was terribly difficult because uh, there was this thing about how you couldn't uh, chuck uh, dharmic words and images of living gurus in the bin. You couldn't recycle them. You um, you had to go through an elaborate ceremony where <laughs> <laughs> where you burnt them on a propitious occasion <laughs> with <laughs> lots of apologies to the deities. <laughs> And how can you run a, a, you know, a sensible office in 21st century Sydney like that? <laughs> um, so, to my mind, and, and this is, I suppose, a central point I'm trying to make, is this creates incoherences in our lives. Think, where things are not fitting together the way uh, they should in an integrated way. Um, most of us operate from basic... Western reality construct, as I was saying yesterday, um, and the ingredients of that are a cosmology based on uh, Big Bang theory, and um, and then you know, our sense of who we are as human beings is informed by evolutionary biology since Darwin, and um, and now these days, of course, we uh, we all know about neurotransmitters and genes and all that. And so we're getting it yet another kind of layer of belief, uh, which we call knowledge, on uh, about how we actually operate as psychophysical beings. Uh, and uh, magical thinking is a no-no. Uh, and yet we still, uh, a lot of us, uh, are quite prepared to go and um, chant in Pali and Sanskrit and Japanese and Tibetan, etc., um, and yet, you know, strangely, we would make for the door if somebody suggested we join in a Latin mass. Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> I mean, Latin is... Uh, I, I've matriculated doing Latin, and it's, I feel sort of quite at home with Latin, but I don't feel at home at all with Tibetan. Uh, so it's no better, it seems to me, at the uh, at the communal level. And you know, we um, denizens of the North, South, and West Island are citizens of <laughs> citizens of the planet's two oldest extant democracies, and we are not really into social deference. You know, it's not what we are acculturated into. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't make any sense to us uh, to 
somehow insert ourselves at the bottom end of these chains of command or uh, hierarchies of spiritual authority. So uh, this, this is what happens with um, uh, the, the sort of secular breakaway from normal organising principles in the Buddhist world. Because, uh, as I was saying yesterday, monasteries are organised more or less like armies uh, with a chain of command, very clear, specific set of ranks and uh, commissioned and non-commissioned officers and uh, so on. And... Um, uh, you can, and in most uh, most of the Buddhist world is organised in an extremely authoritarian, hierarchical way, and uh, so we, of course, are the uninvited guests at the wedding by by being um, by by wanting the good old flat, uh, small R republican organisations that the Buddha himself set up after all, two thousand five hundred years ago. So, you know, we are looking at a, a conception of community which is, um, which is a community of equals. And th this, strangely enough, is quite, um, is quite rude and revolutionary and, um, and uh, yeah, kind of um, showing no respect in, in the Buddhist world. So, <clears throat> um, you, you often find with the, just the simply layer-sized versions of uh, traditional Asian Buddhism, this, uh, this kind of idea that one cannot question the teacher. I, I recently had, for some reason, I was reading a, a, a PhD thesis by a Swedish woman who, who was doing a participant observation of uh, the Goenka movement. And the Goenka movement, um, for those who don't know, is extremely popular in the West uh, and it's, uh, it's a kind of a Pasana movement that, um, and, and the, 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 the kind of guru of it is a man called Goenka, who is... Um, Burmese, but his main base is in uh, India. And so she's actually taken, she's got permission to take photographs of Goenka retreats. I can't tell you how many people I know have been on Goenka retreats in Sydney. Um, but there's, she took a picture of the rule, you know, the house rules that you go into. These are residential retreats, of course, 10 day residential retreats, the house rules on. Um, on the wall. Rule number one, take your shoes off before you come inside. Rule number two, never question the teacher. <laughs> Rule number three, turn up on time at meals. You know, sort of. <laughs> as far as I can see, you know, all my um, sophisticated friends who go on these things, they just obey the rules. <laughs> they never question the teacher. Um, there you go. Um, and um, then, of course, there's that cultural question that I half raised yesterday about um, meditation practices and uh, meditation practices that were designed for the regimentation of celibate males in total institutions. Now, what 
to those sort of practices, those te technical kinds of practice have to do with uh, people like us who uh, are of both genders, householders, with our highly complicated lives with jobs and mortgages and cats and dogs and, uh, and relatives and, and um, all those issues we deal with. One of the most important things to realise, I think, about a meditation practice, uh, and I hope you've already realised it just from your experience of meditating this weekend, is that your meditation practice, what, you, what you experience in meditation reflects your way of life. Uh, that what, whatever your way of life consists of, uh, it, uh, you, you will find it coming up in your meditation practice. If you're being, um, if, unless you're trying to, unless you're trying to bracket it out, you know, unless you're trying to follow one of those techniques where, uh, for instance, cognitive thought is ruled out. That's of course a, a huge inhibition we get through coming through Asian traditions is the whole idea that um, that thought is a no-no in meditation. But what's that all about? You know, I mean, thought is a very common experience. <laughs> 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 Can you interrupt at this point? Meditation, um, I always understood, was to bring about stillness of mind, space. And I thought all meditation was designed to do that. And if you're getting the thoughts just run through and just watching those thoughts, this isn't meditation. Or watching them, yes. Mm. But if you're just letting them run through and going with them, this is something else, not meditation. Not well, commonly thought of as meditation. Yes, well, that, that is precisely the kind of belief that I'm talking about that's coming through the monastic tradition, the, the monastic side of Buddhism. I don't know if it's a belief, but it's a, it's a, um, a meaning, isn't it? In the dictionary, I would have thought. In, oh, no, no, not at all. I, I, think, I think meditation is about receptivity. It's, it's about receptivity to experience. Meditation? Meditation is about receptivity to experience, yeah. I've never said it quite like that before, but I think it's mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. certainly what I've meant before. The stillness is about, I mean, one of the things why you, you sit still or you try and be still even if you're walking <clears> is, 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 to, is to open up that receptivity because if you're rushing around, you know, making dinner, it's kind of difficult to be receptive, mm. usually. Yeah. But you can do it that way. Mm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let me just um, suggest to you that meditation, particularly insight meditation, is about um, is about the, the becoming aware of our experience, whatever that experience is. As I said yesterday, if you sit down for a meditation session, everything that happens, everything you become aware of during the that meditation time is meditation. There is no, uh, there is no point in separating out something that's happening to you in meditation as not meditation. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Now I know that 
and, and, but the whole idea of trying to stop cognitive activity in meditation is a training principle in monasteries. Uh, but that is because they're spending, that, you know, they've got, I don't want to sound um, uh, superior here, but they don't have much to think about in monasteries. Um, they, you know, I mean, life is extremely simplified. So it may, it could, it's, it is probably um, a, an aspiration one can have to, as an act of will, to stop thinking. But, you know, we, we all have brains and, uh, and we live these complicated lives. We're having to uh, think about what the next step is all the time. So we're going to be, we are thinking beings. We are thinking beings meditating. <clears throat> um, let me just tell you a little story from my own experience here. When, I, when some of us started working with Jason Siff about seven years ago, um, there was a, a teacher's retreat and uh, everybody on that retreat had been practicing for about 20 years. And um, there's always a bit of, you know, uh, quite a bit of collegial conversation goes on on Jason's retreats. And um, the issue of samadhi came up. You know, these uh, states of absorption uh, when the mind is actually uh, still, it's an extraordinary experience of stillness of mind. Now, we all had still bought into the idea that one could not access samadhi uh, unless discursive thought had, um, had completely ceased. And Jason said, where on earth did you get that from? <laughs> he said, of course you can, have, you can have samadhi experiences while cognitive process is still going on. And, I mean, you wouldn't want to be going on too loud, uh, but, um, but, you know, there could be a bit of chatter going on in, in the background, and you can still go into a samadhi state. And the rest said, oh, is that right? And, um, and within 24 hours, we're all, exp you know, <laughs> reporting uh, samadhi states because we'd let go of this inhibition. Uh, you know, a samadhi state is is mental is a state of mental integration. Samadhi it it's conventionally, interestingly, conventionally translated as concentration. So it's the last uh, the last fold of the path. Uh, but it really is a state of mental integration, where, where you, you know there are where you don't have that kind of rather jagged feeling of this thought and that thought and, and things sort of not really um, not really flowing. What's the what's the heart feeling quality of it? Uh, look, it's not a it's not a. Uh, it's it's not a unitary experience. There's samadhi. There's samadhi experiences come in all signs of qualities. The heart the heart feeling with a, a very strong samadhi experience is is one of enormous expansiveness and um, uh, and confidence. I guess yeah. 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 Yeah.
Well, sometimes they're not there, but sometimes they are there. Sometimes there are thoughts going on, and and sometimes if you you know if you're a meditator who often and easily accesses samadhi uh, samadhi states, uh, you might get um, a word of advice from a teacher: is that you should actually use it to drop in an inquiry question. So. You're actually, being, in, instead of just, you know, lying back and copying it sweet, it's, um, it's uh, it, you, to actually use, use this state of extraordinary mental luminosity to toss around a question, like, or toss around just a word, a word like finitude, for instance, or mortality, or something, you know, where, you can, where, where you're in a, a really good state to look into something, so, you know, so some ac quite elementary aspect of, of your life. Um, did I have anything more to say? Um, just finally, one thing is um, language. Again, it's, uh, it's important to do our spiritual work in the language we know, the language um, that is most accessible to us, and that will usually be our mother tongue. And uh, this is why it's, it's important to uh, think about your meditation experience. If you're... Um, if you're, uh, for instance, doing recollective awareness, to express your experiences in your own language. I've, I've just broken that rule by talking about samadhi, but we don't just don't have a word in English for samadhi, so we'll borrow that one. Uh, but normally, uh, for instance, if you're on, on a recollective awareness retreat, you'll be asked to, uh, if you want to talk about your meditation experience, to talk about it in English, to talk about it in uh, your own terms and not fall into technical Pali terms that you've, uh, that you've learned before. Um, and so cultures are highly specific. It's a thing about culture. It is, is a very specific thing. Uh, but it is, as I was saying yesterday, like our operating systems, nothing happens without it. It's what we depend upon to get things done, to get things uh, sorted out, and to understand ourselves, uh, to communicate with others, and uh, you know to coordinate quite intricate societies. So um, we should be a little bit uh, protective of our cultural integrity when we're dealing with something as intimate and something as important as our meditation practice and our wider spiritual practice. So, um, I think I'll leave it at that. We're two minutes late for morning tea. And we come back and have a bit of, um, a, bit of a discussion. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.